welcome to the Creative Scramble. My name's Carl Thompson. And my name's Matty Singh. I'm back. Yay. And today... Where have you been? You've just been doing podcasts without me. Oh yeah, sorry about So, that's alright. Um, today we are joined by TV and film editor Andy McKee, or Andrew McKee, whatever you prefer, sir. Hello. Um, Andy has worked his way up in the world of fil feature film editing since 2011, and he's since worked on feature films such as Another Life, which won Best UK Feature at Raindance 2017, and the upcoming film Eaten by Lions by director Jason Wingard. And this is scheduled to have limited nationwide release. I believe. 29th of March, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so, Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, first and foremost, briefly, we always say this briefly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the projects you've worked on? Um, yeah, so I am an editor and I mainly focus on narrative films and scripted television. So anything with a script, I am up for editing, basically. Um, so I've worked for the past eight years or so um, doing that, working my way up, starting on really low budget stuff and slowly climbing the ladder. Um, recently I've done a couple of feature films which have started getting awards and cinema releases and stuff like that. So that's been great. And I'm also starting to dip my toe into TV drama. Um, just did a CBBC thing and I've got another TV programme hopefully coming up this year. Awesome. I mean, you've come up since I've known you. Andy is another FutureWorks fellow graduate. Escapee. Escapee, yeah. <laughs> um, you've come up as just pure editing. You've not really gone through the runner, assistant editor route, which can be the typical route to get into feature film editing. Yeah. You've kind of gone in there, collaborated with directors, I'm assuming, and just got involved with projects. Have you found that path compared to perhaps going down the more traditional route. Yeah. Faster, so, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, faster. I think so. Um, so basically, just whilst I was studying, I found as many directors and producers as I could and edited every short film that was out there on Mandy or Shooting People and all those websites that uh, people go on. And eventually, just one of those producers went on and produced a feature film, which they asked me to edit. Um, and that basically got me to be known as the person in Manchester who has edited a feature film. Um, because I think now you take it for granted everybody has editing software and everybody can edit films and whatever. Ten years ago, um, it was much more expensive to get into. Uh, there wasn't Creative Cloud, there wasn't you know subscription Avid, there wasn't any of these things. So just to be able to edit HD footage, you needed a lot of money to set up an edit suite, or you needed to be able to access FutureWorks edit suite. Um, so basically, yeah, since then I've just kind of jumped from project to project, and it's always about having worked with someone on the previous project, whether that's a producer or a director, still carried on doing the odd short film to kind of get acquainted with a specific director I wanted to work with or something like that. And yeah, that's basically just how it's gone. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the alternative route, starting working in a post house and learning the ropes that way, assisting someone and learning from them. But yeah, it can be quite slow. And I know people who went that route and are still on the cusp of becoming editors who are my age. So whilst it's not for everyone, the route I've taken, I think has been quicker 
in getting me to work as an editor on you know, films that people are actually going to see. How old are you, by the way? 32. Okay. And what were you doing when you were sort of, <clears throat> you know, what were you doing to earn money, basically, when you were putting yourself out there working on these smaller projects and this feature? Was that, were you able to make a living straight off the bat? Or did you have to sell yourself on the corner, on the street corner, <laughs> in order to make a living? No shame. Well, there's lots of shame. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, no, editing feature films when I started out did not pay the bills. Um, so I did some teaching, um, but teaching editing, which was really useful because it kept my skills up. It helped other people like Matt, you I taught for a while. You did teach me. Um, That's oh. why I'm so good. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> How to edit. So, you know, it brings other people up and it's, you know, something relevant. And then also, I just edited projects that weren't feature films in between. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Corporate films, music videos, whatever I could find, really. Um, because it keeps you fast at editing, and it pays the bills whilst you haven't got a feature film. I mean, even if you look at the highest profile editors in the world, they're not going to be doing more than a feature film a year. That's like a good rate to be doing. So you're never going to be booked out solid. And if you're working on features that are not massive budgets then you're never going to earn enough money editing feature films alone until you get up into the stratosphere of you know yeah, Teddy Hamilton level yeah exactly did you always want to separate yourself as I am a film editor I want to edit dramas you didn't want to go necessarily down short form commercials music videos even though you did those projects but you thought feature films is what I want to be known for yeah absolutely I think um, I mean I quite like documentaries um, as well and um, the first thing I ever seriously edited was a documentary but when I discovered editing drama that's the thing that just clicked for me like this is what I want to do and I saw the magic of you know taking these performances and these camera angles and putting them together and suddenly it becomes a film like that's the moment it's a film Nobody on set is looking at a film. You're looking at camera angles and lighting and whatever until you edit it together. Only then does it become a film and there's some magic in that. And so I was drawn to that and that's where the opportunities have arisen, I suppose. Brilliant. So you're all about story, ultimately, rather than too much technical side because I think people can get caught up with all the, the new, latest software, toys, gadgets, all yeah. that sort of stuff. You feel like story is key, I guess. Oh yeah, story is absolutely the most important. I mean, as an editor, there's technical things you need to know, especially on lower budget things where you might not necessarily have an assistant or uh, a post-production supervisor who's handling all those things for you. Um, you kind of have to be able to jump between all of the disciplines to a degree, which is why I've done a lot of work as a colorist as well, um, mainly because I've been working on a production where if I didn't color grade it, no one was gonna, so I might as well do it. Um, but yeah, absolutely, as an, as an editor, if you're not bringing good storytelling to the table, then a director's not gonna come back to you. Like that's what the role of an editor is, is to be that filter between the director and the audience who can kind of decipher what the director wanted to do and what the audience will perceive and allow that story to be told in its best form, I think. So are you putting together like an initial edit and then a director will come in and then view it and review it or are you literally working with a director shot by shot doing what you're told or are you given much more creative freedom? Because I imagine when a director's on set they 
they get the shots, they know what the performance is, they know roughly what's going to be, they have it maybe partially edited in their head, but then you come in and put a different spin on it. Yeah. How does that relationship work? Yeah. So, yeah, pretty much in all case, you're going to be doing an editor's cut before the director ever comes in, whether that's just practical reasons or because they're actually on set shooting whilst you're starting to edit. That's pretty common in film and TV now, that you're starting editing as soon as they start shooting. So they're obviously not there to guide the edit. So yes, you're using the script notes to a degree to like know which take the director liked the best um, and things like that. But in terms of how you put the scene together, it's your instincts in that first assembly of the film. Now, the director might come in after that and completely change every take and every angle you used, but that's pretty unlikely. How much does that hurt? <laughs> Just undoing everything you've done for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not precious. Um, I'll try anything to make the film better, um, but it's, it's, it's very unlikely that that would ever happen. A director's never going to come in. So you have a great deal of kind of impact on what the finished film is going to be in that first stage of just crafting scenes together but if you're smart you'll still not lock yourself into those decisions like filmmaking is uh, sort of film editing is kind of like decision management in a way like there's a million decisions to make in the editing of a film uh, you know how many takes are there how many different camera angles are there for just one line of dialogue and you've got to pick which one and you've got to make that decision a hundred times a day um, so managing how you effectively make those decisions and then also allowing yourself to change your mind really easily later on is kind of the best way to set up your workflow as an editor because ultimately the quality of the decisions you've made is how good an editor you are and how good the film is at the end of the day if that makes sense. Is a certain, you've got to be so aware of just knowing every, they always say know your footage, know performances, every little nook and cranny of it because mm -hmm. the more you know, knowledge is power in that, in crafting the best story you can, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned to me prior to this that you have worked on set as well as post as well. How have you found the experience of editing on set? Is there distractions or? Yeah, so I've done a couple of films where I've edited in the vicinity of the locations that they're shooting at least um, whilst they've been shooting and you're not dumping rushes you're actually editing actually editing yeah um, yeah so on both uh, just two films I've done that on yeah I think just two films I've done that on I've always had an assistant uh, slash DIT who's dumping rushes sorting everything out and I'm there just to edit whilst they shoot um, and it's kind of got pros and cons I think um, obviously there are benefits because if you're editing whilst they're shooting, if something comes up that's missing, then you can say, hey, uh, I really need a close-up of that or I really need a wide shot of that to show the lines, you know, whatever it, it might be. Um, I don't think the performance is working really well here. Can we reshoot? That's much more likely to happen if you say that on set whilst they've still got the location and the cameras and the crew, etc., etc. So it's useful in that regard. Um, and it can be useful just to kind of calm people's nerves, especially people who are putting money in. If they can watch scenes cut together as you're shooting, then they go, oh, okay, yeah, it, <laughs> it looks like something. <laughs> yeah. It's quite interesting. It seems like quite an American model. I know with British TV, quite often you, know, you get your cast in, you'll shoot, then it goes to a post house, they'll edit, and then they'll deliver it. In America, what they're doing at the moment is they are shooting, editing, and delivering, and still shooting at the same time. Yeah. And still, so you've got content that's airing, 
whilst it's still being shot. Right. Because there's James um, Buckley, for who he used to do in between us, he was kind of talking all about that this week and how he's working on a, uh, a series for HBO and that's what they're doing because they're doing that much content. You know, you're talking like 24 hour long episodes yeah. of a particular series. That's so much content to put out. And it's, so it's literally know, starting to broadcast before it even, before they even finish, finish shooting. The shoot, yeah. right. So <laughs> that's another beast entirely. Like, yeah. You can't go back and tweak <laughs> the first episode at that point because the no. world's seen it. I guess that comes down to planning. Mm. Yeah, that seems a bit over the top because I mean I suppose it depends how concrete the, the story is because if you know exactly what's going to happen in the final episode and how it's going to play out then yeah maybe that makes sense but if you don't and there's some flexibility or you know you might tweak the edit or the way the film ends then you might want to come back and seed something earlier on so to lock and try and uh Put on transmission at the episode one before you've done the last episode seems it's a bit ballsy. Seems right. a bit ballsy. It yeah. takes very strict planning to say this is how it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. very very tight scripts. I guess that they've got that all signed off well in advance. They know what the story's going to be. It's not like Lost where you sort of getting towards the end thinking I'm not sure the writers know. Just scribble something down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Polar bears. <laughs> one one funny thing you mentioned to me was that one of your features, I think, was it the kill after the kill? Age of kill. Age of kill. Sorry. Um, where there's fun fact, Mark Mode's ten worst films of the year. It got put <laughs> on that list. That's an accolade, right? I know. There. How did that feel? Um, this is a feature, right? It Tell was a feature film, yeah. I mean, I didn't take it that badly. I mean, it was the tenth worst film of the year. It was number ten okay. on the list. <laughs> so there were nine. The least films, worst. Yeah. Film. <laughs> there were nine films worse than it. And if you looked at the budgets of all the films that were above it on the list, like uh, I can't remember how all of them. But uh, Mordecai was on there, the Johnny Depp film. I don't know if you've seen it, but that's absolutely terrible. (laughs) Um, But that would have had, you know, tens of millions of dollars in it. Just for Johnny Depp. Just for Johnny Johnny Depp. And we had, I don't know, a quarter of a million on that film, something. So it didn't didn't really hurt that much. It was quite an achievement, really, I think. At least you got a feature film finished. I think that's... Hard, hard enough achievement <laughs> yeah, exactly. in itself to just get it from start to finish. Once you start going through investment and getting all the crew together and then delivering it, it's somebody's put their entire livelihood on the yeah. line. To and you know, it was on a, there was a DVD in Tesco there you could buy. The, uh, in the bargain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Someone somewhere is going to buy it. And watch yeah, it got it. discounted when it ended up on that list. Um, quite, it's quite funny actually. Uh, the, the biggest thing problem Mark Commode had with the film, because he did a review of it when it was on this list. Was it for um, his podcast? Yeah. Um, it's great exposure. I'll it's great it exposure. Is. For yeah. him to pick it up in, yeah. in whatever sense. <laughs> um, but the reason he hated it the most was because there's a villain in the film and essentially the plot is that uh, the uh, Martin Kemp, the lead actor, is getting these phone calls. Your daughter's been kidnapped. You have to kill all these people otherwise I'm going to kill her. That's the basic plot of the film. Um and so he keeps getting these phone calls off the villain and you can tell which actor from the film it is giving these phone calls so not and it's somebody that martin kemp knows so the so for him as an audience member he's going 
how does he not recognize his voice and I recognize his voice? And then three quarters of the way through the film, when you do, you know, the Scooby-Doo moment, pull the mask off, who's the villain? Well, yeah, of course we know <laughs> who that is because it's been his voice throughout the film on the phone. But um, whilst I was editing it, it was actually my voice <laughs> because we didn't have the dialogue recorded by uh, Phil Davis was the actor. Um, we didn't have his dialogue recorded. So it was just me on the other end of the phone. So there was no way you would have told because it was like a Northern accent instead so you just, of you just it. So it was only, I blame, audio post um, entirely. Yeah. And it was Enos, so. Oh, Enos, if you're listening. Previous podcast guest. <laughs> so you guys all, you had the same launching pad. So we've had a few of you who had Joe Naturis with Enos. Enos, sorry. Um, you all worked on a film called The Zombie King. Mm -hmm. Was that from a Future Works collaboration or did you all sort of work together? And that seems to have been a really cool launching pad for a few of you. Yeah, I can't remember how we all ended up on that. I mean, certainly Enos brought on Joe because um, I think Joe was studying at Future Works at the time and Enos was teaching there. Um, so that's how Joe got brought on board. And. I'm not sure how the producer heard of me, but it's Rebecca Claire Evans, who I've worked with a few times over the years. Uh, she was also the producer on it in Another Life, and she's producing Blank, which I'm working on at the minute. Um, and yeah, it was an interesting project because it was super low budget zombie comedy, but they managed to get Edward Furlong, um, John Connor, if you don't know who that is, um, and Corey Feldman, yeah, over from America to star in it, um, and yeah, it was it was just kind of it was very early on in my career. It was quite an experience. Um, again, I went down and worked on set for just the first week of that film, whilst um, Ed Furlong and Corey Feldman were there, um, just so that they could make sure they got everything they needed from those two because they only had them for like a week, and then they were going back to America and they were shooting for three more weeks with the rest of the cast. Right. Um, but yeah in honesty it's a bit of a mess of a film but it's quite fun if you watch it but you can tell the budget is pretty uh, it's right. pretty low and how did you build that connection with this producer Rebecca um, I don't really remember how she got in contact with me on that film that was great, that Andy. Thank you for that. Thank you for providing <laughs> so, so much value. anecdote, yeah. Um, you said most of your work seems to have come from word of mouth and recommendations. You seem mm -hmm. sounds like you've gone from one project, done a good job, and then it's teed up you for the next project. Is that a quite a common theme for you as an editor, um, or is it? Do you have a mint website? How how do you go about finding your work? Yeah, I think I probably have a terrible website. Um, so it's definitely not that. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think it is just connections. You know, it's yeah. Uh, I worked with you on this film, I did a good job and essentially whether you get a job as an editor or a DOP or whatever high level role you want in a, in a feature film or a drama, it comes down to whether when the producers and the directors and the execs are in a room and they say, hmm, who should edit this? Someone has to say your name. That's really what it comes down to. So unless somebody has seen a film that you've done and been impressed with it, or worked with you before, 
it's unlikely that your name is going to come up. It's not like most industries where they're going to put out an advert for a job and find someone who's perfect and you submit a CV and, all, and have an interview. It just doesn't work like that. It comes down to whether there's somebody in the room making the decision who goes, what about this guy? I've worked with him before and he was good mm. and a reliable pair of hands um, and he doesn't cost too much. <laughs> how, how do you go about costing up a feature? Um, do you quote it on a day rate or do you just say your 90 minute film is going to cost you 500 pounds so I used to <laughs> do it more than that. I used to do it uh, as, as a block rate really for a feature film um, and that worked for a few films and then I did that on In Another Life um, and quoted a price to do the whole film thinking it would take a couple of months to do um, this is grading plus Sound design plus the edit as well? Or what was Just edit and grade on that film, yeah. Okay. So there's somebody else who did the sound. Um, and then it took nine months. <laughs> so, which I, and I don't absolutely don't regret uh, working on that film. It's the most important film I've worked on. It won loads of awards. Um, it won Best UK Feature at Raindance. And then it won a British Independent Film Award. So absolutely loved working on the film. But that's kind of taught me the lesson that you shouldn't just give a quote for a film and, and work on it. So everything I've done since then has been weekly rate, really. Because it's going to take weeks. It's not going to take days. So there's no point doing a day rate. It's always a weekly rate, really. Um, so. And then if a director demands more changes or tweaks, you bill accordingly. Right? Exactly. It yeah. takes more and more weeks. Yeah. What did you do in that nine-month period? Did you just have to go back to the streets and sell yourself or exactly, you just yeah. have to slim down on your, your living expenses in order to get by no I mean basically as it, as it dragged on we started spreading out the edit so we'd just work a day or two a week on it um, and the rest of the time we'd be doing other work to, to pay the bills which is not ideal really and, and it's not just you know me wanting more money saying we should do it uh, weekly it's also like I would rather just be focusing on a single project for as long as it needs to be done because there's a lot of the editing work which requires you just to have the story in your brain. Um, you were talking to before about like knowing the footage and how well you know the footage and that's really important. There's a point like in the editing process where you reach like the, the film is in your head somehow, like it's loaded into your RAM, for, for lack of a better analogy, sure. like, and you can instantly... So somebody says, well, can we cut that bit out? And you go, well, no, because that comes back later in the film when he says this, and you just you know all of those details, and it's kind of a bit... Um, what's the word? Rain manish, to be honest. But um, So I would rather just be focused on a single project and not having to juggle other things to make money and so that's why it makes much more sense to just be focused on something. Whenever somebody says, oh, well, can we just do it on the weekends? And I, I don't want to because, and not because I'm precious, but because that is the best way to make a film is where you're just focused on it and you understand it and that's what you're dealing with every day and you're not loading other things in, competing with it. What are some of the common hiccups you would sort of see or would arise during the feature film edit process? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> Don't say none. <laughs> yeah, that always easy. No. Um, I mean, finding the right structure and finding the right length for a film is probably 
the biggest door opening. Uh, it's probably the biggest hurdle to get over. Once you kind of figure out how long a film should be and exactly how it should be structured. And the structure is not always uh, how it was in the script. It really, you know, th there's going to be some malleability of the film um, that means you should think about well, maybe we start here and then we go backwards. Maybe we can rearrange these two scenes and it, the audience won't really know they're out of sequence. So finding how long it should be, should it be 90 minutes, should it be two hours, and finding the structure that makes the most sense. Those are the two biggest hurdles. Once you've done that, like editing scenes is pretty easy once you've done so many of them. Um, it's more about the, the macro. Is that the right word? No. Yeah. yeah, the macro scale of it and figuring out how all the pieces of the jigsaw fit together. Yeah. Do you ever come up against sort of too many cooks? You know, producers and investors wanting to get involved in an edit and tweak things, or do they often respect you and a director's vision to make it as good as it possibly can be? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way to answer that question without disrespecting executive <laughs> producers. Throwing someone specifically, not name any names. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, the more cooks there are, the longer it takes. Um, so, I mean, I did a job recently uh, where there was a writer who also had an executive producer credit. Um, and so they had the ability to give notes, as many rounds of notes as they want on a film. and Because they were invested in it, financially. Well, yeah, they had a, not financially, but they had an executive producer credit, which means they get have say in what they, in what goes on basically. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was complicated because essentially what they were trying to do was fix problems that were in the script, in the edit. Fix it in post. That was going to be the name for our podcast, but we realised it's been taken. Yeah, it was. <laughs> fix it in post. Yeah, don't fix it in post. <laughs> fix it in pre, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it can it can be difficult dealing with, uh, especially when the notes are remote uh, and they're just coming in uh, and you never see the person. That's the most difficult thing. If someone's in the room... Because you're trying to interpret the notes and what they're thinking. Yeah, and if a note doesn't work... If it's a remote note that's been sent by email, you can't. It's difficult to email back and go, "No, we can't do that," because they'll go, "Why not?" Well, let's show it, and it just takes so much yeah. time. Whereas somebody in the room, they go, "Can we uh, rearrange this, or can we insert a line there?" And you go, "No, it doesn't work," and you can show them that it doesn't work there and then. It's a much more fluid process. So, I think that's where where things can get difficult. It's not necessarily that there's too many people there, but if you're not all in the same room working towards the same creative vision and there's things just coming in from external, that's where it gets a bit like juggling fire. <laughs> um, you've spoken about working on In Another Life, which, f which focuses on the refugees, Syrian mm -hmm. refugees, so an important film that people should check out. Um, this also formed your relationship with Jason Wingard. Yeah. Who you have then gone on to work on the upcoming release of Eaten by Lions? Yeah. How did you come across Jason? Because it's important. The one of the most important relationships for editors is with directors. With the director. So absolutely, yeah. Um, so yeah, I in, uh, inherited another life um, from an editor called Pavel Pratch. I hope I pronounced his surname correctly. Um, and he'd been assembling the footage from the first block that they did. Um, and In Another Life is all about the refugee crisis. So they actually went out to Calais 
to the jungle, which is the famous refugee camp there, um, and talked to refugees there. They took two actors with them and basically improvised scenes around the stories that they were hearing. They didn't have a script when they went out and did this. It was a very unconventional project, but it was about kind of trying to capture the reality of what was going on out there rather than, you know, sitting here in Manchester and going, oh, I wonder what refugees do and just imagining a story. They went out there and found out what this real story was. Um, so Pavel moved away and I inherited the project because uh, the producer, Rebecca, had been, I'd worked with before on Zombie King um, and she recommended me. Um, and yeah, it was a great project to work on. It was shot over three blocks. So they did a shoot in Calais and then they did a shoot in Warrington where they built a refugee camp. Oh. <laughs> and Best from place Warrington, for it. I'm yeah. not going to say about Warrington. <laughs> um, yeah, they didn't have to do much work. Um, and then, <laughs> and, then uh, and then they went back to Calais and did another block over there. Uh, so it was quite, that's why it took nine months essentially uh, to edit that film. Because there was so much footage, surely, and you're trying to stitch yeah, together exactly. some form of story. Did, mm -hmm. did it work? Well, I mean, it won some big awards, so I think it did work, but it was a lot more like editing a documentary than it was like editing a feature film. Um, there was a script, but we weren't attached to it, and we would quite happily throw bits away and use bits of improv, and there was a, there's actually uh, a character in it who was a real refugee from Ethiopia, um, who they met in the jungle and his stories that he tells in the film are actually what happened to him. So that it's a kind of mishmash between documentary and na um, narrative feature in a way, um, which was a challenge. There's also quite a bit of uh, archive footage in there um, that we sourced. So yeah, it was a weird film to edit um, and it took a long time because of that. But as a result, I think what you end up with is something that feels like a real story from one perspective about the refugee crisis. So Eaten by Lions is basically the polar opposite of that film. Um, so we've gone from a kind of realist docu-drama hybrid to an ensemble comedy. Um, and Jason actually had this film funded before we even started on um, In Another Life and won those awards and things. Uh, he'd done a short film called Going to Mecca which was the basis of Eaten by Lions uh, several years ago. And uh, Eaten by Lions is basically the story of a young lad and his half-brother. They've been living with their grandmother entire, most of their lives and she dies. So they're kind of cut adrift, really. They don't really know what to do. They could either go and live with the auntie and uncle of his half-brother or Omar finds out his dad he lives in Blackpool, who he's never met. So they go off to Blackpool to try and find the dad um, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> with uh, hilarious consequences. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find approaching features now with the experience, you've got a better workflow in terms of how you structure things and what you're looking for, or do you find there's always going to be new challenges along the way? Yeah, I think every film is different. And you're almost trying to find the language of the film. There's lots of stuff you can do to make yourself faster and more efficient um, in terms of workflow. But essentially, 
you know, the editing style on In Love Life and Eaten by a Lions, despite them being the same director, is just polar opposites, really, um, because of the style they were shot and because of the nature of the of the scripts. So, uh, Eaten by Lions has a lot of improvisation in. There's, uh, you know, several well-known comedians in it um, who just ad lib lines all the time, and that was probably the biggest challenge of that one. I bet the continuity could be like, <laughs> yeah, Face continuity palm. notes just like, <laughs> um, and ad libbing is is difficult thing to to capture and also direct and then to edit um, because you imagine, uh, you know, if you're shooting one character and they ad lib a line, and it's really funny, but then when you shoot the reverse angle, they say something completely different, and so the reaction you get is different. So it's making sure. And sometimes you have to sacrifice a really good joke just simply because you don't have the other pieces that would need to go around it um, in order for that to work. Um, there was one scene in particular which was is with a fortune teller. Um, it's quite early on. When they arrive in Blackpool, they don't know where to go. So they go and see this fortune teller and he's the worst fortune teller in the world. <laughs> like Phoenix. <does. laughs> yeah. Um, it's played by Tom Binns. And... It, he did so much ad lib that when I first cut the scene together, if I tried to put in every joke, I mean, it would have been 20 minutes long. And in the finished film, it's probably two minutes. So that was the challenge of Eaten by Lions, is whittling down that you know amount of content into something that was just a watchable 90-minute, 98-minute feature film. Mm -hmm. um, I think the first assembly was like 150 minutes or something insane. How many times do you go through watching a full feature? Do you think roughly? Yeah, are you, you sick pick, of it by the end? Or do you pick scenes that you have to cycle through and then build it that way? Yeah, I mean, you start on scenes, but you're pretty quickly going to be working on a full assembly of the film. Um, I would say, like, say a, a film shoots for four weeks, probably after four weeks of editing, you probably have an assembly of every scene put together because that's really where most of the work goes and uh, starts. Um, putting the scenes together can be quite quick, but then you go, oh, well, that scene doesn't work next to that scene because the pacing is, you know, whatever. You want to see it in the context of the film. So you're pretty quickly looking at an entire 120-minute timeline or whatever the feature film is. Um, and, yeah, probably the biggest challenge, whether it's a drama and you're forgetting how tense a moment was or it's a comedy and you're forgetting how funny a moment was you have to remember how you thought of it the first time you watched it um, because of the, because that's what the audience are going to see you've seen a film a hundred times by the time more probably more by the time you've edited it and they're watching it for the first time and you have to remember how funny you found it or how tense you found it or whatever the first time you watched it um, and test screenings can be quite useful for that we did do a test screening of Eaten by Lions, but that's the first time I've ever done a test screening on. And that's to gauge an audience reaction and see if the pacing's right for certain gags and stuff. Because a lot of comedy editing is all about pacing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and trying to get that reaction at the right time. It can be milliseconds in and out as to whether that's going to work. Absolutely, yeah. For an audience, that's a real skill. So it's just, yeah. And obviously with um, a test screening, you do the feedback forms, right? And people fill out which bits they liked and which bits they didn't and what they would change about the film. And they can be useful, but what's so much more useful than that is just sitting in the room and feeling how people react to stuff. And 
oh, that joke didn't land because I didn't leave enough time from the pre, you know, all those kind of little minute things. And we actually changed the edit quite a lot um, after that test screening, not necessarily because the jokes weren't landing, people laughed pretty much all the way through, but because we just didn't feel the emotional arc of the story uh, was landing as well as it could. So we completely started the film in a completely different way in the cut that's being released at the end of the month than we did uh, in that test screening we did early on. Interesting. So you've come up as this indie feature film editor, you spoke as well, you're starting to dip your toe into TV dramas. Mm -hmm. Have you found that world, which can be quite structured compared to the world you've mainly worked in so far? Yeah. Um, TV drama is it's quite different to indie features, not because of the work, but more because of the way it's structured. Um, you get paid more as well, which is nice. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, essentially when you're doing a TV drama, well, when I'm doing an indie film, it's mostly, it's coming to me as an editor and there might be some peripheral crew around that. But at the minute I edit indie stuff in my own edit suite, um, I've got an office in Media City where I have an edit suite there. Um, and if I need an assistant, I'll be hiring them and those kind of things. Whereas with a TV drama, it's gonna be a post house that's managing all of the post-production. And they're going to be, the reason is that, you know, producers are looking for a package deal. Uh, they're going to go to a post house and they're going to get so many weeks in the edit suite and they're going to get the grade and the mix and, and the graphics and anything that needs doing is all going to be handled in one place, right? Uh, maybe visual effects as well if it's needed, whatever. Um, so it's that you're being kind of pulled in as one cog. Um, you're still hired by production, um, which is... You know, some roles in a post house might be hired by the post house, but for drama, most uh, the editor and the assistant editor usually are hired by the production company um, rather than by the post house. Whereas, like colorists and online editors and sound mixers and things like that, they usually work at the post house and are there just working on whatever projects that post house has. Yeah. So, do they then are they then brought in as crew and tend to use like a production company's kit and rather than having their own? system because I guess a lot of your stuff is done remotely so mm -hmm. people come to you with the footage and then you work on in your own time or you know you bring people to you if the director comes they come to your office and you sift through it yeah. as opposed to going to an actual much larger studio space for instance and using their systems yeah yeah so yeah for a tv drama you're going to be in an edit suite in a post house editing for however long you're editing whereas yeah with my stuff I have my own systems um tell us about that what's your man cave like um, <laughs> I mean, it's quite simple, really. I just have a Mac Pro set up, nice screen, and a big 42-inch television uh, with a nice chair next to it for the director. And I just try to keep it as simple as possible, really, um, because... And some Oreos, packet of Oreos. And a coffee Generally, machine. Yeah. Do you have a neon light? <laughs> no, we don't have a neon light, but it's we do, light. <laughs> you do have a coffee filter, that is the most important thing, um, and comfortable chairs. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine you spend a lot of time in a chair, um, working. And no windows. Blimey. Have you thought about getting a standing desk? That's all the rage at the moment, so it'll be healthy. Yeah, um, actually the post house I just did a TV show in had those desks that you could come up and down. Um, yes, and I wanted. It's important, isn't it? Yeah, like you've experienced it, it yourself. I mean, you're, you know, sitting down at long, for long periods of time and it affects your back and your ass and all that sort of stuff. And getting sunlight. And we're interrupting you here. Sorry. It's but right, it's, um, 
it's you said like your shifts, your blocks of work over quite long periods of time, weeks, months at a time. Mm-hmm. As an editor myself, I prefer the like two, three days here, a week here, time off. Um, just because it can be quite exhausting, mm-hmm. mentally and physically. Um, so how do you sort of try and make sure you can stay healthy as well, make sure you, you are walking about, making sure your exposure to sunlight is good, <laughs> which is important for humans, we need that. So. Uh, well, I have three dogs, so that definitely helps. And you know, I just make it a rule every day before I go to work, I take my dogs out. So that at least gets me some sun rays, although not so much in Manchester, and not if it's in winter, because it's going to still be dark when I walk them. But, uh, but that's definitely helping um, and keeping my exercise levels up. Um, and yeah, apart from that, I go on holidays where I just walk a lot, so try and stay healthy that way and eat healthy and that kind of thing. And yeah, take breaks as often as you can, um, because I think people sometimes just burn themselves out when they're editing and I used to do exactly the same thing um, and just edit or grade for just hours and hours and hours and not sleep and all that kind of stuff and it doesn't actually make you any quicker and it doesn't actually make you any better if anything it's making you slower and it's making you worse so I'm not somebody who's going to be there until 10 o'clock every night editing because I don't generally don't think you're going to get five hours more work done by staying for five more hours so i've tried quite strict about that kind of thing that's good have you found the people you've worked with there okay with that because i don't know if there's any resistance to like sometimes i've always when i was in full-time work you feel guilty Mm -hmm. like i'm just going to go for a wander across the road to costa or whatever and you could or just disappear for like half an hour even though you've already had your lunch break but I think it's important, but I swear people just stick to their desks and make other people go get them lunch. And mm. I don't think it's very good for the modern world, work life in general, Yeah, where a lot of us sit down. Yeah, it's weird, like post houses, because you've got runners and things, you can literally just stay there, you know, except if you need to go to the toilet, you could just sit at your desk and have somebody bring your coffee and bring your biscuits and bring your lunch and double in weight over the yeah. <laughs> over the Bring years that you're an editor yeah <laughs> Bring insulin. Um, so yeah I'm exactly the same like if I'm going to get lunch I'm going to leave this place and go and get lunch and not look at a screen for the next hour um, and I don't know maybe I've just been lucky with the people I've been working with but they've always accepted that I think just because I still get the work done I'm still fast um, so and that's the main thing really is are you getting the work done how much time do you spend uh, sort of upskilling and learning new techniques, or do you feel like you've cracked editing? Um, I think editing is one of those things that you just learn by doing. I don't think there's necessarily many things you could read up on um, in order to make yourself a better editor, but I do try and enhance the skills I have around editing. So sound, music, um, visual effects, things like that. And not that I'm always doing visual effects that are gonna end up in the final thing, and I'm often doing sound work that's not gonna end up in the final thing, but knowing how to do those things informs the edit. So I always do sound work up until the point that it's informing the edit. I always do visual effects work up until the point it's informing the edit, um, because 
if you know with a different music track or a different sound effect you are going to cut in a different place and that's really what matters about being an editor is where you cut so that's where i tend to try and upskill um color grading visual effects audio things try and learn stuff in those peripheral areas around editing but then actually editing I don't know if there's a good way to sit down and learn that stuff other than having material to edit, um, if that makes sense. I think whether you edit with, I use Premiere, I need to relearn Avid, you mainly use Avid. Once you know the set fuel t tools that you need, you can do, accomplish what you need to accomplish in yeah. the same way when you're operating a camera. Once you know what this does, you can. it's down to your imagination and your own skill set. Um, talk to me about what makes like you've spoke about meaningful editing mm -hmm. what is that to you because with so much focus on all the other bits and bobs but what the real craft of editing is yeah um so i think i talked before about the idea that your editing workflow is essentially like decision management so the thing i do to help with that to make sure I'm picking the best take for everything and the best camera angle to show something is um, I do, I've heard other editors describe doing exactly the same thing, but I've never heard anybody name it. So I call it an enhanced string out. So it's literally every action or line of dialogue, you have every angle and every take down in a timeline so that you can see, all right, this line of dialogue I could show in a wide shot or a mid shot or a close up, and I've got three takes of the close up. So the first decision you make is, well, what angle do I want to show this line of dialogue from? And then the second uh, decision you make is, well, which take is the best one, or which take is the best one in relation to the other, which is more important, really. Um, you know, you might pick the best take for six lines of dialogue in a row and then find that they don't flow together. So it's it's about which one, okay, so I could go for this take and this take and this take, and they all work quite nicely because they have this flow of anger building or whatever. Um, so it's kind of this process, and it's quite labor intensive to build that kind of thing. If you've got an assistant, you can get them to do it, but that's a luxury I don't often have. So you have this huge enhanced string out, and then you're whittling it down into a sequence. Um, so th that's kind of how I manage the decision-making process and make it as quick and efficient as possible because I wanna be able to have time to focus on the other elements of editing, which is not just picking which is the best take of a line of dialogue, but it's about creating extra layers of meaning in the film that are above and beyond what people are saying and what people are doing. So you hear people talk about editing a lot uh, as like an invisible art form. And I think it should be to a degree. Like you don't want the audience to sit there and think, oh, they put that shot next to that shot. That must mean this. They, you don't want them to be thinking about the editing. But I think some people take that too far and think that the editing should just show the story as it happened, if that makes sense. So what I mean by like meaningful editing is that every time you cut, you put two things next to each other, you should be thinking about what meaning is that creating? And that could be something simple like, you know, do you start the scene on a close-up of something and then reveal uh, the rest of the scene because you're telling the audience that this thing is important and it's gonna come back into play later? 
or do you, you know, where one scene ends and the next begins, you cut between two uh, lines of dialogue that interrelate or two objects that interrelate and create a new meaning. It's uh, the Russian theory of montage editing, right? Where you put two ideas next to each other and you create a new meaning which wasn't in either of those two ideas. So those are the, that's what I kind of mean by meaningful editing is you're looking for those opportunities to create an extra level of meaning in the film by just thinking about how the two different things go together. Um, and it might, it's gonna be much more complicated than that often. You might have 10 things that all go together to create something. Um, but that's, that's the kind of idea that I'm thinking about with meaningful editing. And making sure your workflow is good means that you've got the time to think about those things and so just throw <laughs> things together. You don't have folders like titled MISC or anything like that. I was going to ask you how important <laughs> is a tidy timeline and a tidy project bin? Because yeah. I've opened projects from other editors before and it's just like MISC or yeah. you know, Card A or whatever and you're just thinking, I have no idea where to even start with yeah. this. No, I'm incredibly anally retentive and as you should, I think you should be really. Um, I think like sometimes you find those connections almost just by accident, by free association. I think if you're stuck in a rut and you're not quite sure what to do, throwing things on a timeline together and just looking at how things might relate is a perfectly valid thing to do, just to get an idea. But if you aren't organized in where your footage is and how your timelines are organized, then you're gonna be spending more time worrying about that crap than you are about how good the editing is. So yeah, organization seems boring and you know, building an enhanced string out seems boring when you're doing it, but it allows you the time and the flexibility to do all those other things, which are what are gonna make your editing good. So yeah. prepare well, and then the editing itself becomes quite natural, I suppose. Um, to sort of start to wrap this up a little bit. Yep. Um, thank you so much so far. It's been really, really good, really good advice and really good info. I think so. Um, but what would you say the future holds? Or do you have any particular projects you really want to try and pursue and work on? Do you see Hollywood in your sights? Or? Um, I think I just want to keep building what I've been doing and working on better projects. Um, not too fussed about Hollywood. Um, I just want to work on bigger and better projects, not just in terms of money, but just in terms of scope and the quality of um, the production, really. Um, I think in terms of things I'd like to work on, I'd really like to do something which is a uh, perhaps um, more of a mosaic type story where you've got multiple um, stories going on simultaneously that somehow relate. Um, you want to work on Love Actually, basically. Not Love Actually, no. Great example. I was thinking like Babel, but you know, oh, if you yeah. want to bring it down to Love Actually, fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, Who directed Love Actually? What's his name? Can't remember. Anyway. Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis. Curtis. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a call, Richard, if you've got an idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'd love to do something like that where it was related stories, but kind of a tapestry of, yeah. of different stories that somehow relate together. I've never done anything like that. Um, so that would be good. I'd also quite like to do something that was a bit more action-orientated. 
kind of like Paul Greengrass or something. Um, that would be great. Because I've, I've done some action, but nothing that was like prolonged action intensity uh, for a lot of the film. So I'd like to do something like that at some point. Brilliant. Um, right, finally, I think we'll do our little quick fire round that we've been doing with folks. Um, so you're 32 now. What advice would you give to that young 21-year-old self? Um, I mean, I suppose just go out and make films. Um, there's, you know, you hear every filmmaker say this now. There's no real barrier to whether you can make a film or not now. Um, the technology is so easy to get a hold of, even with very, very little money. I'm not going to say it's all free because you still need computers and cameras or phones or whatever. And not everybody can get that stuff. But most people can get that stuff and you can go out and make films and learn about the craft of it. Because what you make at first is probably going to be shit. But that's the kind of the point of it. Make something, recognize that it's shit and then make something better the next time. And probably the only thing that separates someone who gets to a point where they're good is whether or not they can see that what they did was shit or not. Um, like if you can look at your early work and say, well, I did that wrong and I did that wrong and I did that wrong, then you're gonna improve. And if you just make a film and go, oh, I did a great film and uh, everybody should watch it, you're probably not seeing the flaws in it that you need to grow. So that's that's what I recommend is make films and don't be worried if the shit. That's the point. That's what Tarantino did, I think, didn't he? He spent three years making a film he never wanted to show people. Yeah. But he learned how to make a film. And then Yeah, exactly. There you go. And then he broke the mould and now he does what the fuck he wants. Yeah. <laughs> the guy. Um you spoke about what you do outside of work, you like to walk the dogs, any other fun hobbies and whatnot. Uh quite like to cook. Yeah. Um, See, editors are interesting people as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, read. Yeah, I don't have a particularly complicated life. Um, but yeah, reading, walking the dogs, cooking, that's good for me. Keep yeah. it simple. Yeah, avoid screens if you can possibly yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. And so finally, where can people uh, connect with you or reach out to you if they want to ask you some questions or you know, maybe employ you? Yeah, uh, so I've got a website you can go to, which is andrew-mckee, that's M-C-K-E-E dot net. Um, and, or you can find me on Facebook or Twitter, I sometimes go on, which is at Andy Bob McKee. Cool, thanks very much for your time. Cheers, mate. Thank You're you. welcome. Nice one. <laughs>